Welcome to the Small Business Big Impact Podcast, where we speak to people and planet-positive small and medium businesses and startups about how they are creating an outsized impact and how other small businesses can too. In this interview, we're talking with a fair trade trailblazer, creating a better life for farmers and factory workers in apparel and sports, recorded live with audience Q&A. Nick Savaitis is the founder and CEO of Etico. A former high school teacher, Nick was working in Indigenous communities in the Northern Territory in the late 80s and early 90s, when he set up his first social enterprise in an effort to engage his students in learning by creating employment opportunities. That early experience inspired Nick to start his own ethical business, first distributing the ethical shoe brand No Sweat in Australia, and then going out on his own to create Etico. In 2006, Etico was the first fashion brand in the Southern Hemisphere and the second fashion brand in the world to gain fair trade certification. Under the Etico group is Jinta Sport, making fair trade sports balls and also funding sports programs in Indigenous communities, as well as Etico merch, providing customized items like jerseys, t-shirts, bags and hats. All Etico products are sourced via fair trade certified suppliers in India and Pakistan, where the fair trade system ensures fair prices for small farmers and factory workers, as well as setting labor and environmental standards and investing back into local communities. Etico also addresses its environmental performance using organic cotton in many products, natural FSC certified rubber and recycled rubber, no animal glues, and FSC certified paper and cardboard packaging. It also offsets its carbon footprint by purchasing credits from Timor Leste via Carbon Social, who work with subsistence farmers in Bagia to replant trees, improve livelihoods, and build village economies. Etico has now also become B Corp certified, Social Traders certified, won many awards like the Victorian Premier's Sustainability Award for Small Business in 2008, the Banksia Award for Business Sustainability in 2008, and the 2016 Australian Human Rights Award for Business. It's also the only fashion brand to achieve an A-plus for ethical production in every single Australian ethical fashion report since 2013, including the 2021 report just released yesterday. And I should add, while other stores were closing down over the last year, Etico has now opened a new shop on Sydney Road in Brunswick. So congratulations on that and welcome, Nick. Excellent, uh, Sarah. Glad to see you did your homework. And uh, yeah, I'm not sure how wise opening a shop on uh, Sydney Road in uh, March this year was, but time will prove uh, us right or wrong. But uh, yeah, it's certainly been interesting. Yeah. But yeah. yeah, we've we've continued during the despite a few challenges during the the lockdowns, a series of lockdowns we've had, and uh, and certainly the online space has kind of kept us alive. But uh, yep, yeah, it's it's yeah. all we're in, we're in a better position now than we were when when we when we went into lockdown. So yeah, oh is, fantastic. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's obviously you couldn't predict the future when that. When you went into that lease in March, but certainly going to be a good investment in the long term, I think. But I certainly thought that you know the uh, lockdowns were a thing of the past when I when I signed that lease. Anyway, <laughs> yes, exactly. Knock on wood, make sure it doesn't happen again. Yeah. <laughs> we're all cool. knocking on wood, exactly. Yes, it's been tough here in Melbourne. Um, but you say that um, you're in a better position now that, than you were when you started. Why is that? Uh, because of the growth in the online kind of space, um, certainly that's helped. And uh, I think it's also happened, I'm not sure whether it's because of the issues around supply chains, but I think there is a growing consciousness amongst consumers about their the impact of their choices as consumers. And I think uh, a lot of other brands in this kind of eco-ethical space have owned a better position now than they were two years ago because of that. Maybe people are having a bit more time to think about what they really want in life or, yeah, kind of realising that we're part of a bigger system and then we've got to start looking after each other and certainly start looking after our planet. 
yeah. because it will come back and bite us on the bum if we don't. Yeah, and it, and it has been. Yeah, it's it's interesting that that you've been seeing that change. That it's not only the shift to people being happy to buy things online, but looking specifically to buy things that align with their values and the impact that they want to see in the world. I've I've observed that very much as well. People actually taking the time to research um, what exactly they want to put their money toward, or you know, what is the best brand for the thing that they need to purchase. Yeah, I just hope it continues. Yeah, I hope um, you know when things settle down that people don't go back into the operating as you know mass consumerism as they were before and start looking at the long term. Yeah, definitely. So you're business has always been so focused on fair trade um can you tell us a little bit about how fair trade works and how that makes such a difference for people in the supply chain well i can talk i mean everyone's heard of fair trade coffee and fair trade chocolate and um you know when the fair trade system started it really started to support fair trade coffee sorry to support coffee growers in mexico probably about 40 50 years ago i've got how long it was but uh yeah, um, yeah, people looked at the, uh, I know farmers in Mexico were complaining about the lack of return for their coffee beans. And um, it was actually a, a Catholic priest who started it, uh, who was working with communities in Mexico. And uh, they thought, you know, rather than just relying on handouts from charities, you know, what could be done on to help farmers get a fair compensation for their produce? I mean, um, and, uh, you know, basically started selling it into the North American and European markets at a price which uh, enabled farmers to be able to feed their families, put a roof over their head, educate their kids. Um, so basically they worked out a price that farmers needed to achieve in order to do all those things. And uh, so they're called, it's called the floor price. So the, So each year... Fair trade, the fair trade label uh, working with uh, farmers and producers work out what a fair price is for coffee. I'm not sure whether you, how much you know about the fair trade system, but it's actually the label, the fair trade label is actually overseen by a board. And that board is actually made up of a majority of farmers and workers involved in supply chains. So they decide <laughs> working with these cooperatives um, what a fair price uh, should be for their produce. And the reality is that, you know, coffee and cotton and um, coca, it's all um, produced by small farmers, small scale kind of farmers in developing countries. And um, it, um, the fair trade system helps them kind of come together in cooperatives and use the, the strength of a cooperative rather than just individuals to get fair compensation for their, for their produce. I mean, it's, it's pretty hard for a single farmer to negotiate with a, a an, an international coffee brand to get a fairer price. But uh, when they work as a cooperative where they have hundreds of farmers coming together, you can negotiate. You've got more strength to negotiate. So when I started, I, I work in the cotton space and um, I work with, I've always worked with a single farmer cooperative, cotton farmer cooperative called Chetna Organic. And... Um, and when they started, and when I started working with them, there was about 300 farmers in the cooperative. Now there's about 7,000 farmers in the cooperative. And you can imagine what kind of strength they would actually have when it comes to being able to negotiate fairer prices for their kind of for their cotton produce. And, the, and that's all done through the fair trade system. So with in relation to cotton, uh, the price of cotton fluctuates on a daily basis, weekly basis. And um, yeah, so it's there is a floor price for cotton, and if the price of cotton goes ab above that floor price, the farmers get that higher price. But if the price of cotton collapses, which it often does, they still get the guarantee that they're going to get that floor price, which enables them to feed their families, put a roof over their head, educate their kids. And uh, that, I think that's where the strength of uh, the fair trade system uh, lies. Um Fair trade cotton was launched in 2004. Um, 
to help farmers in countries like India and, um, and in Senegal. Um, so it gives them stability with their income. And uh, the other thing with the fair trade system is the entire supply chain, which is certified fair trade. So everyone involved in a fair trade certified supply chain has to be certified. So you can actually track the where the cotton comes from as far back as where the cotton seed comes from to the, you know, so if someone, some factory in India claims that they're actually using fair trade cotton in their supply chain, you, know, you can actually track it in, in, in this entirety. Um, and that's where the the strength lies. And, and since 2016, the fair trade system's also been working on addressing the issue of the living wage for workers in factories. So, and we've been heavily involved with that as well. Um, but it's um, it's hard to get fair trade certification. It's harder to keep it because you know the the demands on being audited are, are quite strenuous. Um, I know it's it's also it does cost, um, but that's why farmers are encouraged to join cooperatives because that cost is actually spread across the whole cooperative. But it gives it gives, a, it gives the fair trade system credibility that a lot of other accreditations are lacking. And there are a lot of other accreditations which sound like they're doing fair trade. Um, but if you actually scratch below the surface, it's basically voluntary. Um, it's kind of, I mean, it's not addressing creating major impact in, in the farmers or workers' lives. It's basically guaranteed most accreditations just tick boxes or help organisations tick boxes with this, that um, gives the impression they're actually doing the right thing. But there's no on-the-ground community development being done through those accreditations. Yeah, it's interesting that I think fair trade is quite unique in basically being a social enterprise itself and being a complete system. You know, um, a lot of sustainability certifications that you see are just the criteria. You must meet these standards, whereas fair trade is so much more than that. Yeah, and also it does. You know, the thing to always bear in mind is that the label, the fair trade label, the you know the one you see on coffee and chocolate, the little waving farmer, yeah, yeah, the little symbol, it's actually controlled by the very people who is designed to set up uh, to protect. So there's no other accreditation which is actually run by the very people who are benefiting from that accreditation. Yeah. Yeah, exactly, so, um, to have, them have those cooperatives as part of the actual governance. Yeah, it didn't start off that way. It was originally started off by, with all, so the, the original board was actually just lots of different NGOs. And there's still some uh, non-NGOs, some non-government organisations involved in the board, but they're not the majority, yeah. Mm. And um, the you mentioned with that Indian cotton cooperative that you have yeah, worked the with organic, Chet, yeah, um, farmer, organic farmer cooperative yeah and and you mentioned how much they've um grown significantly in the last sort of decade so is that primarily because of the demand for fair trade cotton or are they um providing non-certified cotton as well that's part of their growth um no no it's all organic fair trade uh the question is whether they're always going to get the fair trade price because um uh, not everyone's prepared to pay the difference between for a fair trade uh, accreditation. So um, they try to sell as much cotton um, at the fair trade kind of level. Um, but sometimes if there's a leftover, they, uh, yeah, they just got to sell it at whatever price they, at the moment, uh, there's a huge demand for cotton, uh, for fair, especially organic uh, cotton, mm. and they're getting a pretty good price. And that's because, Chinese cotton has got such a bad reputation now um, that even the Chinese manufacturers of garments are not are not avoiding it. And so what the, the Chinese manufacturers are doing is they're actually sourcing all of their cotton from India now. So it's actually a good time for um, farmers, cotton growers in India at the moment, but you don't know how long that's going to last for. Um, you know, but you know, with the fair trade system, you know, we've been working with uh, farmers for since two thousand and four, and you know, if they keep on getting that higher price, then that's fine. But they'll they'll always know there's going to be a floor level just in case that price kind of collapses, 
And the, the next crop uh, in India is uh, taking place in December, January. And uh, they're expecting a pretty good crop. Whether that's enough to meet all the international demand, uh, we don't know. But if it's if there's too much cotton, you know the price of cotton will come down again. So the farmers have got that protection that mm -hmm. uh, they wouldn't have otherwise. Yes, it's so important to have that balancing of the global trade relationships with the power imbalance as it yeah. is. And it's also important to highlight that this fair trade system is it's in, genuinely independently audited. Um, a lot of other accreditations are, are actually uh, run by the very brands themselves. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, we don't need to mention the accreditations, but there's a, quite a few brands out there which are actually set up by the, the brands themselves rather than being completely separate and completely Felt independent. Thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so for those businesses who um, might not want to be going full fair trade certification, but want to make sure that the products that they're purchasing are ethically made, ethically produced, um, what suggestions would you give to those businesses of how to actually look into their supply chain, what steps to take, what questions to ask? Well, I've been heavily committed to the fair trade system because I felt as a small business, I just didn't have the resources to be able to audit my suppliers. Um, that's why I've always been keen on working within the fair trade system. Um, but, you know, I appreciate that not everyone has that option, um, depending on what part of the world they're working in. And, uh, um, you know, when I, uh, before I launched it, I was involved with a brand called No Sweat. And that was not fair trade certified, but, you know, it was genuinely an ethical brand. Um, and what we did is we relied on the opinions of a guy called Jeff Ballinger, um, who's often seen as the godfather of the anti-sweatshop movement. He's uh, the one who went into the factories in Indonesia in the 1980s and exposed Nike's uh, practices there. And, uh, yeah, he was advising the No Sweat brand so, you know, having someone who, who's been at it for quite a few years and knows how to measure or what to ask, the kind of questions to ask at the factories, uh, that kind of helped. Um, but we also had a close relationship with the union that operated in the factory. Um, I, I visited the factory a couple of times and uh, spent quite a bit of time with the with the workers and also the unions that operated with the workers. And um, I suppose, and, I, and, and the workforce was unionised, um, which is pretty rare in a lot of developing countries. Um, still, even in these days, um, the, the vast majority of factories are not unionised. So, yeah, I put a lot of faith in it. I mean, mind you, the people who are running the unions would have made great extras on the Sopranos. Um, but, uh, yeah, they're not kind of people you want to mess around with. Uh, but the, you know, the workforce, you know, we would actually look at the pay slips of the workers and um, Jeff had access to um, what other brands were paying workers as well. And, you know, we were able to see that the pay slips showed a, a higher pay rate than what workers in other factories were getting. So, I mean, that's why I'm one of doing it. Uh, another way would, I mean, I'm no expert in this area because I've kind of, I fessed up and I said, look, I'd rather the fair work through the fair trade system. Um, but I know there are a lot of people who go, have close relationships with their suppliers in, in Bali or whatever. And I don't know, feel 100% comfortable with that because um, it's often families employing their own families and I've worked for family businesses and I know that families don't always pay their families fairly and you, know, you do it because you're your family, it's not because it's a proper job. So, yeah, I, I wouldn't rely on that. It's a very good argument for just going with the certification that you know that someone else is doing the verification. Someone else is going yeah. in and checking that they're doing the right thing. Because okay. I know, you know, a lot of the, I see a lot of coffee brands 
um, trying to go outside the fair trade system and say, oh, but we're like direct sourcing. We're working directly with these farmers. We know them, we trust them. But there is a place for having someone else coming in and doing the checking and that you can trust. Yeah. Um, Molly Olson-Harris, the, uh, the CEO of Fair Trade Australia, kind of used the analogy where she says that we know that both Superman and Hussein Bolt are really fast, uh, but we can actually prove that Hussein Bolt is fast. You know, we'd like to think that Superman's fast, but there's no proof. So, and she uses that metaphor as an example about why it's important to get third-party verification of any kind of ethical claims that you're making. Yeah, and so true. And we know that greenwashing is rife in the industry. So it's always better to, to have that third-party verification of these things yeah and i see it all the time with um, brands i was actually talking to a university the other day about ethical procurement and uh, they mentioned that their supplier was assured them that they were ethical and they mentioned the accreditation that they were using and it's self-reporting there's no there's no third-party verification it's just basically yeah we we are doing the right thing and that's it yeah and i can tell you what what a nice guy I am yeah and how we're doing whatever we're doing in, in in these factories but it's important to get someone else to actually verify that yeah absolutely yeah now I'd love to to move on to the success of your business um you know it's, it's been 15 years um and I'm sure that you've changed tack a few times during that so how would you say that your approach has shifted over the years to where you are now? So the big difference is I'm a lot more confident with what I'm doing than when I first started. Because um, when we started, there wasn't really an ethical, eco-ethical market in Australia for fashion and footwear. And I was never 100% convinced that, you know, <laughs> that we, it's a wise thing to do is to put everything I own on the, on the table and risk it. Um, but... Yeah, I've seen the growth in this whole eco-ethical space and I'm a lot more confident now. Um, I really haven't changed my supply chain and since we started. We've been working with the same producers since the very start. I mean, and, um, you know, a lot of other brands have multiple suppliers. I've kind of stuck with the same ones because better that, what's the expression? Uh, better the devil you know rather than, yeah. And, yeah, they haven't always been, you know, we've sometimes had issues with our suppliers. But we, you know, we work through the issues with them and, and um, address the challenges that they're facing or we're facing. And uh, and that actually helps us keep our A-plus grading with the Australian Ethical Fashion Report because, mm-hmm. yeah, we know what's involved in our supply chain and uh, the people who do the, uh, the reporting know that we know. Yeah. So that's actually helped. Um, I suppose, you know, the other thing that we've done is we've expanded our, our offering. So when we first started, um, I'm not sure whether you're aware, we actually started Etico selling sports balls and uh, gradually started expanding our range. And, you know, from sports balls, we went to sneakers. So basically we thought if the people in the factory could actually, that we use in Pakistan that makes us fair trade sports balls, if they could stitch a soccer ball, surely they could stitch footwear as well. And uh, yeah, we managed to work with them to get them the factory to invest in some equipment to be able to do vulcanized sneakers. And then we just, uh, as we become more confident with what we were doing, we just started expanding our range um, into t-shirts and then hoodies and underwear. Yeah, and we we we're always expanding, um, but uh, we still need to come up with something, you know, new new products on a regular basis. Um, I mean, our sneakers, uh, for example, look very similar to another well-known sneaker brand who's we won't mention. Um, but, you know, we are looking at coming up with our own unique design rather than just doing a kind of a look-alike uh, version. Um, so we're putting some resources into that. Great. Um, also, you know, we also listen to what our customers want. And, you know, we've been asked regularly over the past couple of years for socks. So, you know, we're about to introduce a fair trade kind of sock as well. Um, but um, sometimes it's it's hard to decide whether just to focus on what you're 
what you've been doing or whether you should expand. But uh, we find that a lot of people are buying into the whole um, vision of the business. Um, you know, they, they're not just buying a pair of sneakers or a, or a pair of underwear. They're buying a, a vision of how the business should operate, um, you know, how a fashion brand should um, take responsibility for their supply chain. Um, and also take responsibility for their product from the beginning to the end. So even when you finish, you know, when customers finish their product, wearing their products, or whatever they, and they want to return it, we can actually do something with it. And you know, the, the, talk about talking about circularity. So we we started looking at circular. We've been wanting to do circular fashion before we'd even heard that expression, circular fashion. We, um, but you know. Uh, we started two years ago taking back all the footwear that we've ever produced, and that is, and that footwear is actually made into outdoor mats at the moment, mm. um, and indoor mats as well. But we are will be um, introducing it into our footwear in the future. So future footwear that we're producing will actually incorporate wasted, uh, recycled footwear that we've actually sold in the past. Anyway, we're also about to start doing the same thing with clothing. So. Um, in the next month or so, I mean, we're just trying to get everything kind of lined up, but we're ready to start taking back any item of clothing that Edigo's ever produced, and that's going to be uh, recycled and made into new threads um, through a Brisbane-based company called Blocktex. Okay, great. Um, but uh, no, there's a, a lot more that we could do, but we can't do it unless we actually scale the business up. I mean, one of the things that we're working on at the moment is to come up with a shoe that you can actually replace parts, the parts so that when the sole does wear out, instead of buying a completely new shoe, you just replace it. Um, the sole, yeah, and other parts as well. Um, and that must be, that's somewhat leading edge. So it must be a challenge to work with suppliers to be able to achieve that. Yeah, well, um, I actually first read about something similar about 15 years ago. Apparently, Nike had actually developed one. Wow. Um, never saw it on the market. Right, um, just like but, the electric car, they decided to shelve that. <laughs> I mean, uh, I've been at this for 15 years, and 15 years, all those, the big brands have always come up with some new great eco shoe, um, whether it's made made from um, plastic waste or uh, as we talked before about uh, parts that you can change, but you never see it on the market. And they use it for, they tend to use it for PR kind of exercise, but the, they still sell the same crap they've always sold. Um, you, know, you can imagine how many pairs of shoes are sold in the world every year. And um, none of it is, I mean, very little of it is actually ever recycled. It all goes into landfill, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, we're trying to be responsible across the entire supply chain. Yeah. And, you know, when you started this, you really saw it as a no brainer. You know, if you wanted to be selling these products, you'd want to make sure that they were ethical. And we have assumed that consumers would feel the same way. But um, you've had some challenges in, in really getting the consumers on board with that idea. Can you kind of talk a bit about that? Yeah, I thought when we started that the hard part was going to be developing our supply chains. And they were a challenge. Uh, but nowhere near as hard as getting both in people and individuals to shop their values. And uh, I remember quite a few years ago, I was asked to give a presentation on guerrilla marketing. I'm not sure whether we know what guerrilla marketing. Okay. First, okay, yeah. Uh, I was asked to talk about guerrilla marketing at a marketing conference. And uh, after I finished, I sat in another presentation by a guy called Tim Devini, who had written a book called The Myth of the Ethical Consumer. And uh, basically, he's an academic from uh, ANU, um, and uh, he kind of talked about the, the, dis the difference between what people say and what they do. So what they say during interviews and what they do as consumers. And he gave me an example of uh, they set up a, coffee sh uh, a stand in a coffee shop in Canberra where they gave people the opportunity to buy fair trade coffee for 50 cents extra. And they had uh, big signage at the back of the shop with photos of the farmer and um, the coffee beans, et cetera. And, and they basically said, if you pay 50 cents extra, the farmer can actually feed his kids three meals a day, 
educate the kids, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, they ran the, the uh, exercise for a week and uh, they worked out that about 6% of the people who walked into the coffee shop paid that extra 50 cents. So 6% yeah. of all the people, yeah. And um, But then what they did um, later was they did the same exercise, but they made sure someone attractive of the opposite sex served customers yeah, and yeah, the next time, mm. and this time the the amount of people who actually paid that extra was nearly seventy percent. That's quite a jump. Yeah, so basically, his thinking was that people want to be seen as doing the right thing. Yeah, and he gave other examples as well, and yeah. And after the presentation, I went up to him and I introduced myself and I told him about this idea of creating an ethical fashion brand. And uh, basically, based on what he had just said, I might as well kind of give up and just go back to teaching, which was what my job was prior. And he said, no, no, what you got to do is you've got to give people more than just this story about being ethical. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've got to make the products kind of affordable because people don't want to pay much more than what they normally pay. Yeah. So anywhere between 10 and 15% more. Um, You've got to make it accessible. You've got to make it easy for them to actually buy your product. Um, you've got to make it good quality because they're not, you know, if they buy it and it's kind of crap, they're not going to buy it again. Mm-hmm. And you've got to make it a cool proposition and an appealing proposition. Yeah. Wow. That's that's super important, I think, for anyone and, who's listening yeah. or wanting to go into that space. So the, the four areas, once again, they were... Make Price, it affordable, make, make it affordable, it accessible, yeah. make it high quality and make it cool. Yep, yep. And that's what I've been trying to do since that meeting uh, with that, mm-hmm. you know, talking to the, Tim Davini. Um, you know, it was a valuable lesson. And uh, I think the um, the brands that have in this kind of space that have, you know, are, are being successful are the ones who are doing exactly that, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um and they say, um, but uh, with our with yeah. our own Edigo product, um, if you actually look at our pricing, it's actually on par with similar quality brands. So our sneakers are the same price as the number one selling sneaker in Australia, even though they cost us two hundred percent more to produce. So we have to pay two hundred percent more for our sneakers in order to make sure that we're using the most eco friendly materials as possible. Uh, that the farmers who uh, who, who supply the cotton that goes into the canvas, which goes into the sneaker, are paid a fair price, that the workers are, are being paid close to the, the living wage, as close as possible, uh, that we don't use any animal glues. I mean, that all costs, I mean, the packaging using eco-friendly, that all costs us. Um, but I've chosen to sacrifice my margin. Um, so we're not making anywhere near the kind of margins that uh, other brands are making in order to make it affordable. So, you know, I want to make uh, our products accessible to people. I mean, um, it shouldn't be a middle-class luxury. Yeah. So, yeah, and that applies to all our products. So our rubber thongs are the same price as the number one selling pair of rubber thongs in Australia. Mm-hmm. Our underwear is the same price as the number one selling underwear brand in Australia. Um, the only other company in Australia that's making hoodies at the level, at the quality and, and with the ethics uh, that we are is Patagonia, and their hoodies are about twenty to thirty dollars more than ours. Yeah. So yeah, we've addressed that pricing issue. Uh, the um, the accessibility. I mean, uh, luckily when we started our businesses around the same time that online shopping became a thing, I think we would have folded many years ago if we were reliant on shops taking on our products. You know, we've had a lot of retailers over the years tell us they feel, felt uncomfortable with what we were doing, especially in the early days, that they felt it raised too many questions about other brands in their stores. Oh, I see. So, so how do you promote about their yeah. other brands because we were there, right? Yeah. And you know, I've had retailers tell me that they weren't going to piss in the bucket that fed them and their, their staff. Yeah. Well. Fair enough. Yeah. So being able to sell to people online uh, has been a, a, salve, you know, a big salvation. Um, 
And but over the years, there are more and more eco-ethical retailers coming on board. But we don't have any major retailers stocking our products. It's all small, you know, vegan stores or ethical retailers. I mean, there's uh, vegan style in um, in Brunswick, Sydney, Brunswick Street, Fitzroy. There's uh, Eco Lateral in in um, in Adelaide. There's uh, Flora and Fauna. They're all listed on our web. There's lots of um, a few on our website. And we've we're not just selling in Australia. We've also got retailers in North America. Uh, the furthest retail that we've got is actually in uh, Iceland, and we've even got a retailer in Mauritius as well, in Korea and Japan. So we've got retailers around the world, but the bulk of our sales are still online. So uh, pricing, accessibility, yeah, we've addressed that issue. Um, the third one was quality. So I'm pretty confident that we just say that you know we've got amongst the best rubber thongs in the market in Australia, the best quality rubber thongs. We've heaps of five star reviews with. Uh, people telling us that the rubber thongs are the most comfortable rubber thongs they've ever worn and they buy them year after year. Nice. Our, our T-shirts, we've sold them. we've sold in excess of 300,000 T-shirts and we've only ever had two returns because of quality issues. Uh, with our hoodies, heaps of five-star reviews and people who buy them you know, for themselves and their families. Our sneakers have been a bit, a bit more of a challenge because technically... Uh, yeah, it's it's been a, we've had to address a few issues. So, example, uh, we've always specified that we we, we didn't want to use any petrochemicals in our the soles of our sneakers. So we use natural rubber, and natural rubber wears out quicker than uh, than uh, EVA or PVC does. Um, but you know, we kind of experimented with the formula, and it seems to seems to settle down now. We don't seem to have as many complaints as we used to about the, the sole wearing out. You know, because we don't use animal glues, you know, the water-based glues that we've used aren't as adhesive and sometimes there's separation on the, on the side of the sneakers. But the other brands, the major brands, have the same issue as well. Uh, but, you know, we've been... Each, with each version, it gets better and better. So, so much so that... Um, We've actually had uh, third-party auditing of uh, the quality of our shoes and uh, our sneakers. I won't mention the other brand, but we know which one looks very similar to our sneakers. Uh, our sneakers are about 25% longer wearing in the sole than the other brand and wow. about 40% longer wearing in the upper than the other brand as well. Right. So, yeah, so then we've addressed the quality issue. And the final one is the, the hardest one, making it cool. Because right. we don't have a huge budget to spend on marketing especially yeah. when your margin is going to yeah, yeah. the buyers yeah so yeah we've tried to create a street fashion brand for people who care about their fellow human beings the environment and animals um i just wish we had a lot more resources to do it but yeah. given our limited resources i think we've done a good job but uh, we could we know we could do a lot better if we had the best graphic designers and the best uh our photographers and the best uh, social media kind of writers i'm sure we could uh, do a lot more yeah yeah and they they do say that good is the new cool especially amongst the gen z um generation so i do i mean no, i've read that as well and um yeah, i just hope that's going to continue i mean i'd be kind of shocked yeah. if it doesn't but um you know hopefully our timing i mean i've often reflected and i think we were probably about eight to ten years ahead of our time um but that's also put us in a good position because we've got a lot more credibility. We've got credibility that other brands would die for. Definitely. Yeah. And you've, I mean, you know, as you say, you've seen, if you were there eight years too early, then you've clearly seen quite a lot of change in the market. And I noticed that in another interview um, at the start of last year, you said that we were hope that you were hopeful we're turning a corner in that demand for ethical products. So do you think that that has happened or how do you feel about that statement now? Well, um, I know there's a, there's a lot more ethical brands kind of popping up now. And mm -hmm. I'm assuming that's because they, they see the market for that. Um, but I mentioned at the beginning of this interview that um, you know, our online sales are kind of picked up quite a bit. And, and um, even now, the demand for our for custom printing. So a large part of what we do is also produce products for other brands and other organisations. Mm 
So I'm not sure whether you're familiar with the UN's SDG. Actually, you would be the SDGs. Yeah, that's a stupid question. Um, we're finding that more and more organisations are, are trying to apply the UN's SDGs to their procurement policies. Mm. Um, yeah, I mentioned KPMG just recently kind of gave us a pretty big order, and that's because of their commitment to applying the SDGs to their procurement. Yeah, RMIT University is our single biggest customer. Once again, you know, they're trying to apply sustainability and social impact to their supply chains as well. So, yeah, we just need to, to get a lot more organisations like that um, to, to come on board. Yeah. yeah, and I've seen quite a shift in that corporate procurement space in the last decade. So hopefully they're just the the early, early leaders and there will be many others yeah. looking for well, We've just got to make them aware that there are a lot of accreditations out there which sound like they're doing the right thing and um, self-reporting and you know, um, accreditations which are kind of run by the uh, organisations themselves are not the way to go. Yeah. You really need that third-party independent auditing done. Yeah, Absolutely. Now, I recognise that we're um, running close to time um, and... For anyone on the call, if you do have any questions, um, please do add them in the chat um, and I can ask that to Nick. Um, but I'd, I'd really like to dig into a little bit, um, if we have, if we can go a little bit over time. Um, yeah, I was a bit worried that we weren't going to have enough to talk about. But I know, <laughs> I'm surprised you thought that. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I would love to hear from you about um, the successes and failures you've seen in the business over the years. You know, you've yeah, been in the business yeah. for such a long time and you've mentioned that a lot of new startups come to you for advice. Um, so yeah, what have you seen successful and what have you seen the biggest mistakes that you see from some of these businesses? Okay. Um, I remember when I first, within a year or two of starting Etico, there were a couple of other brands um, kind of getting off the ground. One was called Humanity, I think. Uh, I think yeah, I was pretty sure it was Humanity. It was actually run by someone who is ex-country road and he, he had a board which included people from Maya and of a large number of... I mean, it was a pretty hardcore board with you know, serious business experience in the fashion industry. And I thought we we're going to be left behind. I mean, there's no way we can actually compete against brands like that. And they actually won quite a bit of money or gain. They won a lot of awards for uh, their investor pitch. And, uh, but they never got off the ground. Um, Great pitch, another good business model. And then I uh, saw other brands who, you know, once again, people with a lot more experience. So I should actually explain. I don't have a background in fashion. It's not my. I didn't. My. Yeah. I didn't go to fashion school or uh, work in the industry. I'm a high school teacher by training, and I also worked in adult education, uh, but with no background whatsoever. Um, but yeah, you know, there's other people who started off with a lot more resources and a lot more experience in the fashion industry. But um, I remember as a one or two other brands once again um but they really overspent on um setting up their businesses or they uh, i remember there was one company in sydney who had pretty fancy offices in an inner suburb of sydney and she had a pretty decent sized team I suppose basically she kind of fell into the trap where she thought because people talked about ethical consumerism they were actually going to do it and they kind of should believe the research. I mean, I was a lot more cautious, I think. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, so and, and I've bootstrapped the business since day one. So it's been my own uh, my own funds on the line. So, yeah, it meant I've been a lot more cautious. Um, I think the real danger for people is that, and I've seen lots of brands start and fall within a short period of time is believing that the market is as big as everyone thinks it is. It's certainly growing, but I'm not sure whether you're familiar with the uh, LOHAS report, Lifestyles of Health and Sustainability. And uh, I haven't spoken to the authors for a few years, but I was uh, speaking quite regularly up until about three or four years ago. And uh, they talked about the the market in Australia for, for the, the green market, the eco-ethical market in Australia. It's about five to ten percent of the Australian population, um, 
about half the population doesn't really give a toss. Um, and then you've got the ones in the middle, and, yeah, uh, the and they're about yeah they're about forty percent of the market. So uh, yeah, it's how do you get to that ten percent, five ten percent, and then how do you get to that remaining four? How do we get the other forty percent to lean to come up and board? And that's where it comes. If you can create something kind of cool and appealing, then mm -hmm. you might be able to bring those brands. So you look at uh, who gives a crap. And, you know, they've taken a very simple idea, toilet paper, and made it cool by cool marketing, great packaging, great story. Yeah, they've, they've, they've nailed it pretty well. Um, I think Outland Denim has done a, a great job as well, um, the denim company up in Sydney. Oh, sorry, Queensland, Brisbane. Uh, you know, they managed to get people like Megan Markle and Leonardo DiCaprio to wear their products, which enormous PR yeah, and they've really scaled up quite a bit over the recent times. Um, but a lot of people just don't realise the amount of resources that are required to uh, start a fashion brand or uh, to operate a business. Yeah. Um, and what I try to encourage them to do is actually to work with other brands that are working in this space because most of those businesses are under-resourced. So you might as well pull your resources together and uh, work together on it or something. So yeah mind you no one's ever taken that advice as far as i'm aware but yeah brand collaborations are a thing right because a lot of what you're saying it sounds like it's really that cool aspect yeah is, you know, i know with me i'd love to have someone who's really got their head around marketing to come and work with us and be you know do kind of partnership and that kind of stuff but uh, yeah. people right, well, well, i don't know it's people we all have our egos and we all want to create our own little say empires whatever but uh, maybe that's part of the challenge is getting past our egos and you know, being able to go work as a team but anyway yeah yeah did i answer your question i think uh, about the challenges for small business yeah I, I think so. Yeah, it sounds like, um, you know, one of the biggest differentiators between those who are successful and those who fail are expecting that people are going to buy it just because it's ethical, yeah. that, you know, there's a lot more to just building a solid business and brand behind that, right? And I see also a lot of brands who've got designs which are a bit way out, I mean, a bit too funky, whatever, a bit too edgy. With our stuff, it's always been I'm not sure whether you've heard the expression norm core, N-O-R-M-C-O-R-E. It's stuff that people wear on a day-to-day -day basis. It's not high-end fashion. And I think that's put us in good stead as well, yeah. Yes, once again, you're really in with the, uh, the Gen Z <laughs> generation, so that's good. What is is a, is norm core a Gen Z thing? At least I think of it as because I'm sort of high end millennial, so I'm like, oh, those Gen Zs. Okay. <laughs> well, I'm certainly not Gen Z. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. Now, okay, so we've we've certainly already gone over time, so I'll just um, go ahead and ask you my last question that I like to um, hear from each of my guests, because the first one, I, I always talk to small businesses about really focusing on their unique contribution to people and planet, which I call their sustainability superpower. So what would you say is Etico's sustainability superpower? Sorry, you put me on the spot there now. Um... I think in being committed to our mission. Um, so we've been this, you know, through at this for 15 years, and you know, I can't see us kind of giving up. And um, we've always taken our commitment to social impact pretty seriously. So you know, the the um, the Australian Ethical Fashion Report, which you mentioned earlier, was released yesterday, and um, 400 plus fashion brands were were reported on, and uh, of the 400. Only four, sorry, four, four of the 400 got an A plus for their supply chain. And uh, the one thing that uh, all four of those brands have in common is they're all committed to creating positive social impact. And it's only, it's only the brands who got an A plus. And you know, they're the ones who proved that they could actually, they were paying workers living wages, that they were paying farmers fair prices for their produce. Yeah. Four 
out of 400 plus. Mm. So is that 1%? Is that 1%? Yeah, it is 1%. It is 1%. Yeah. 1% of all the fashion brands in Australia mm. are committed to social impact and, and sustainability. So interesting with all of those who claim to be, you know, who still market that aspect, but they're still not getting an A plus in that report. And the reality is that, I mean, there are brands who got an A and a B and they sound, you know, they're a big organisation, but the reality is the gap between an A plus and A is vast. Um, you might want to talk to the authors of that report why why that is, but, you know, um, we know that, the, you know, for there's ethical, you know, in lowercase and then there's ethical in, in capitals, exclamation mark. Um, yeah, so what we mean by Etico, yeah, Etico's, sorry, superpower is that it's fair trade, organic and vegan, all three. Mm. Yeah, and we all, we value all three, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's first in your business. Yeah, and we're not going to compromise on that, yeah. Yeah, wonderful. And now the last question that I always like to get from my guests, what is your number one tip for small businesses looking to be more people and planet positive? Well, why don't you tell me this before? <laughs> Give me some warning. Or I thought well, I was smart to say. Uh, I, think, I think that you've touched on quite a few. May I always suppose... I say building a team of people around you with uh, similar kind of values is uh, would be a key. If you're kind of working in isolation, it gets pretty lonely. So if you can build a team of people around you who share the same kind of vision, uh, same kind of passion, um, yeah, it would actually put you in a good stead. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and you mentioned, you know, building partnerships and, and working with others across brand collaborations and things like that. People like Outland reaching out to Meghan Markle and, and getting those kinds of representations. So the more partnerships, the more you can really get your brand out there. Yeah. And just please avoid eco-ethical washing. I mean, it's just, the world doesn't need more bullshit. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Nick, for your time, for your wisdom and oh, for your commitment to this space and being a trailblazer for so many years. I'm not sure how much wisdom I, there is there, but no, I found it certainly enjoyable to have that discussion. And uh, yeah, appreciate your time today, Sarah. Yeah, I appreciate yours too. Um, and thank you for everyone who's joined us today. And we'll go ahead and post this um, two podcast and video shortly. Um, and maybe you can encourage them to look at our website and sign out for our newsletter and kind of follow us on social media, spread the word. Um, yeah, we really need, we don't have a huge marketing budget. So, you know, we're hoping to raise awareness by doing podcasts like this and, you know, getting like-minded people to encourage their family and friends to start walking the talk. Absolutely, yes. And if you're involved with any organization whether it's a, a school or a, a corporation and maybe encourage them to start walking the talk as well so you know a lot of I mean the irony is that you know I was actually talking to a high school student yesterday and uh, who's quite passionate about sustainability and I kind of pointed out to him that nearly every school in Australia has school uniforms with polyester in it you know they they teach kids the importance of sustainability but then they go buy school uniforms made with plastic yeah, yeah. So, yeah. yeah, we've got to go beyond talking about sustainability and ethics and actually start applying it to the way we operate, yeah. Yeah, and looking less out there and more in yeah, yeah. what we and our businesses and our schools and our universities are, are doing with the everyday products that we buy. Thank you for your time. All right. Thanks so much, Nick. Bye. Bye.